I'm Mark Beattie. I'm the Editor-in-Chief of Archives of Disease and Childhood. In this podcast, I'm going to take you through the articles that I've chosen for the March edition. And in doing this, highlight to you why I chose the articles and why I think they're particularly good ones for you to read. So I'd like to start with a paper on unplanned reattendances. So what an unplanned reattendance is, is when you've been discharged from hospital with the expectation that you won't come back and come back without a planned revisit, for example, an outpatient appointment. So it's one of the eight new emergency department quality indicators introduced in 2011. So it's something we're going to be judged on. So this is relevant to paediatric and adult care and there is a standard which has been rather loosely set that it should be between 1 and 5%. So really the challenge that we have as paediatricians is to work out with the additional factors relevant to paediatric care, social admissions, anxiety-related reattendances, whether that standard is right. So in a very impressive paper in this issue, O'Loughlin and colleagues have looked at reattendance rates within seven days across three different paediatric emergency departments. And one of the advantages of this paper is that the departments are of different sizes and in different locations. And by looking retrospectively at reattendance, not just in terms of whether it happened, but also why the patient reattended, whether the disease was more severe, whether the diagnosis changed, or whether the diagnosis was reclassified, they've enabled themselves to get more clarity about why children might and might not reattend. So it's very interesting because the study has shown that all unit, all the three units had a reattendance rate of 5%. And actually, that therefore might mean that we've got some validation of a standard in childhood. It doesn't mean it shouldn't be better and it doesn't mean it shouldn't be worse, but it's a standard that can be worked on. One of the most interesting things in the article is that between 18 and 34% of the children who were reattended were admitted, so that suggests the reattendance was worthwhile. And 19 to 46% reattended with disease that was more severe than at their initial presentation. So the authors have concluded this article by emphasizing that we need to work on what reattendance is and what reattendance means. We need to think through in paediatrics the different facets to reattendance that may not be features in an adult population, particularly anxiety related representation and the fact that disease tends to evolve and therefore change more rapidly in children. So I think we should welcome this paper as a useful contribution to the literature. The second article that I've chosen relates to melatonin and sleep. So as paediatricians were often consulted um, by parents of children who have significant sleep problems and those sleep problems can potentially have a massive impact on the family and the family's functioning. And it's, it's worse if you've got a chronic disease. It seems even worse if you've got a child with a neurodevelopmental problem when there are additional care issues to add to it. So there's an editorial which has been written by Richard Appleton from Liverpool on the role of, potential role of melatonin. So I think if we can start by accepting that there are many factors in sleep disturbance and really uh, an assessment of a sleep disturbance does require consideration of 
all the potential factors that might be implicated in the etiology and actually a fairly holistic assessment of the child, the family and the context of the presenting problem. Nevertheless, melatonin can and should be considered. And so this article really discusses the use of melatonin, its good safety profile and the evidence base for efficacy in selected individuals. And I'd commend the paper to you because if you, like me, are a paediatrician who's often asked if we can impact to try and help with sleep, then if you take it as read that you're going to do a full clinical assessment and see if there are any contributing factors you should deal with, you may then also want to consider melatonin as a safe and effective treatment option, at least to try. So I would commend that article to you. The third paper I've chosen relates to childhood epilepsy. Um, certainly very common. Not always that straightforward to make a diagnosis of. And actually for most paediatricians as a consequence, just a little bit frightening to um, consider. What's been very interesting is that there has been a national drive to improve the diagnostic capabilities and the knowledge base of paediatricians in the diagnosis. So there has been a considerable push by the paediatric neurology community to make the situation better. So I mean to improve the robustness of the diagnosis of epilepsy. And I've seen that over the last 20 years. So there's a very timely report in this month's issue from Hadler and colleagues. And what they've done is they've looked at the temporal trends in the instance of epilepsy recorded in primary care using data from the Health Improvement Network. So that's a pretty robust data set. And what's interesting is it shows a fall in the cumulative incidence, which is 33% lower in children born in 2003 to 2005 than in children born in 1994 to 1996, with a reduction in the annual incidence by 4% per annum between 2001 and 2008. And that's actually based on anti-epileptic drug prescribing, but it but in being based on that, it means that data is pretty robust. And actually, if you take into account other factors, and this is very clearly outlined in the paper, such as age, gender and deprivation, and use more sensitive indicators for the diagnosis of epilepsy, so that's prescription plus coded diagnosis plus symptoms, then the fall in cumulative incidence increases to 47%. And the annual fall in incidence to 9%. So, in fact, it makes the difference more profound. So, it's an interesting article to go through. It has an impressive accompanying editorial and actually really should suggest to us that the considerable amount of work that's been done through the paediatric neurology community, through NICE, has resulted in a change in how we consider this condition. The fourth paper that I've chosen to look at relates to the incidence and prevalence of chronic kidney disease in childhood. It's quite a complex paper. It looks at the incidence and prevalence within a fixed population which has a referral population of 1.73 million. So effectively it relates to a large regional service. 
And what the authors have done is looked at the incidence, prevalence and etiology of moderate to severe kidney disease presenting over a five-year period. And they've looked at patients pre-dialysis and dialysis-dependent. And so over the five-year period, the incidence increased from 8.4 per million age-related population to 25.2 per million age-related population, and the prevalence from 70.5 to 104.7. In this group, 45 were transplanted, 22 transitioned to adult services, and 7 died. The interpretation of that data is interesting because it does show more serious kidney disease going to the regional unit. And that can be contributed to by two different phenomena. Firstly, that the diseases are more common, and that may reflect increased survival of preterm infants, for example. But secondly, referral patterns may have changed. And there is no clarification as to which of those has caused the change, but certainly an acknowledgement and some discussion of that by the authors. It's interesting also, just to note, the most common reason for referral was renal dysplasia with or without vesicatory reflux, obstructive uropathies 15% and glomerular disease 17%. So I think this is important data for us to give consideration to, to. It does, however, require further exploration of the true incidence and prevalence data, but also some consideration if we're changing our model of healthcare delivery, that's got some resource implication, but also is relevant to the planning of future services and therefore very relevant in the new NHS, which we're all having to live in and work with. The fifth paper that I've chosen relates to activity, body composition and bone health and really is a continuation of the debate we're all having now about how you manage obesity and how do changes in lifestyle factors impact on future health. So this is quite a focused study and looks at the relationship between daily activity levels, body composition and bone health in 36 children aged 6 to 7 who were born at term but low birth weight. And what it did was look at activity through accelerometers and body composition by DEXA. So what the study shows is that activity levels correlate positively with lean mass, so effectively muscle mass, and bone mass. And so obviously the opposite of that being is that inactivity has a negative correlation. I think this is an important piece of work. It further extends the evidence base which suggests that increasing physical activity in addition to watching calorie content, has a positive impact on long-term health by improving body composition. So an improvement in body composition, which doesn't necessarily have to be accompanied by a change in body weight, effectively meaning that the activity makes the child fitter and that this fitness, therefore, is likely to have a long-term impact on adult health and therefore improve long-term cardiovascular outcomes, for example. It's important to study this in low birth weight infants because those are infants that are already have risk factors 
inherent by being low birth weight in terms of long-term health outcomes. I'd like to just mention some highlights from fetal and neonatal this month. Masses of good content. There are excellent reviews on the evidence for non-invasive ventilation in the preterm infant. A review on milk osmolality, does it matter? Both are comprehensive, focused and relevant to clinical practice. I'd like to focus on one additional paper within fetal and neonatal this month. And it, it, it does address a very difficult issue. It's around trisomy 18. So trisomy 18 is a common autosomal trisomy, usually associated with in utero death. And if the infant goes to term with a very poor prognosis for survival. And so therefore is detected prenatally and often terminated. But as part of that process, there's the need to have information about what happens if you don't terminate the infant. And a, a group of paediatricians have put together a report from Ireland, and that's on the outcome of 23 such pregnancies diagnosed in utero that went to term. The fetal death rate was 61%, so that's post-in-utero diagnosis, higher in those diagnosed earlier. And all of the nine infants born alive, four of which were preterm, died within 48 hours. It's quite a sobering report, but actually it does give you information that helps you with families who have this very, very difficult situation of a serious probably lethal antenatal disorder diagnosed and then the difficult challenge of making decisions about whether to continue with the pregnancy. It's a rather sobering report to end my highlights on but um, I felt it was of interest and actually although I'm a non-neonatologist and I don't get involved in such decisions made me start to think through some of the ethical dilemmas that we all face as paediatricians every day. For more information about this programme and other BMJ Group podcasts, please visit bmj.com.